Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily, and Victoria is here as well. And today is Tuesday, February the 9th, which means it is former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. Now, President Trump was impeached in the House of Representatives on January 13th, so now this trial is moving into the Senate. Now, Trump's defense team is going to argue that the president was just exercising his first First Amendment rights, but we really want to dive into that defense and figure out what is really protected under the First Amendment. What are those rights? What speeches are covered and what is not covered? And diving into censorship, not only on private platforms, social media, but how that speech will transform over time. So I'm going to let Victoria introduce our special guest. And our special guest for today is Dr. Clay Calvert, who is the director of the Marion Brenchner First Amendment Project at the University of Florida. He teaches journalism and communications, and he also specializes in First Amendment law. Sure. So I teach First Amendment-based courses here at the University of Florida, both at the undergraduate level and as well at the Levin College of Law, so both law students and undergraduates. So I'm pretty well-versed in terms of First Amendment principles. So Florida is a beautiful place to live. It's one of my favorite places because it's always sunny. It always seems beautiful. It, I just I, I went to college on the West Coast, so I just love any, anywhere where there's sun and sunshine. Where did Uni- you go? University of San you? Diego. Oh, really? Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the most beautiful campus. So speak, and because it's it's cold over here in North Carolina, I'm going to ask you not how the weather is, but what kind of activities do you do in Florida, outside activities or anything like that? What, what do you do in your free time down there? <laughs> there's a, well, there's a lot to do. In, in this area, we have a lot of springs, uh, which are great for swimming and diving in the area near Gainesville, Florida. As for myself, I like running. Uh, it's a great outside. Uh, a lot of humidity, though, during the summer. So if you walk outdoors or you start to run in the summer, you're going to be drenched in just a few minutes. Uh, so that kind of deters you sometimes, <laughs> but uh, the, humi- the humidity, as you probably know where you are right now, uh, is, is often an issue. So yes, it's sunny, uh, but it's often humid. So, uh, but the springs are one of the nice natural attractions around the Gainesville, uh, Florida area where a lot of people go, uh, and also uh, over to either coast, whether it's the Gulf Coast uh, or to the Atlantic, uh, where Gainesville is situated is about 80 miles from the Atlantic and about 60 miles from the Gulf Coast. So you're pretty close to the water wherever you are. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm jealous and sad. But <laughs> that's, okay. But, that's okay. Yeah, it's not like San Diego, which is so temperate and mild all, all year round. So it's beautiful. Yeah, but the water's cold. And so that's a good thing about that's being true. over here on the East Coast. Like in North yeah. Carolina, we're like an hour from the beach and the water's so it's, it's warm. You can actually swim in it. So. Not yeah. now, but... Right. Not now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's get right into it. First, can you tell us your experience with the First Amendment, how, how you're um, well-versed with it, and then give us, give us your ideas about this defense. 
So the United States Supreme Court has held that one of the categories of speech that is not protected by the First Amendment are what we call incitement to violence. So statements that might incite unlawful conduct. So incitement to violence is one of the few exceptions to the First Amendment protection of free speech. Other exceptions we can think of include things like obscenity, child pornography, fighting words, and true threats of violence. So the one that most is most relevant here uh, is incitement to unlawful violence or conduct. There is a precise definition or test for what constitutes that, and it really involves three elements, according to the United States Supreme Court. One is that the speaker in question must actually intend to convey a statement that would cause imminent lawless harm and be likely to cause it. So if you think about the elements there, we have the first element of intent is the statement intended to cause or produce incitement to violence. Two is the violence that might actually result imminent, meaning that the gap between the speech in question and the violence is, is very proximate. It's a very short amount of time. And finally, the violence also has to be likely to occur. So intent imminence and likelihood are really the three basic elements. The problem for President Trump or former President Trump in this case is that that test for incitement to violence, which is known as the Brandenburg test because it came from a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. The Brandenburg First Amendment test for what constitutes an unlawful incitement to violence is really irrelevant in the impeachment proceedings. So the senators during the impeachment trial here are not bound by First Amendment principles of free speech. The incitement to violence standard would be applicable were former President Trump to be tried before a judge in a criminal case in a judicial proceeding. But the impeachment proceedings are not judicial proceedings. They're conducted, as we know, by the legislative branch. They're political in nature. And therefore, the First Amendment freedom of speech and the principles that govern incitement to violence are simply off the table. So what we're more likely to see is, in terms of the article impeachment, which uses the term of inciting in insurrection, is much more of a colloquial use of the term inciting, rather than that precise Brandenburg definition of, is there intent to incite violence? Is it imminent? And is it likely to occur? We're much more likely to see the senators at least the Democrats using that term in a colloquial fashion because they are simply not bound by the First Amendment here, and the Brandenburg test is really off the table. I could add that President Trump is wise to cite the Brandenburg test in the First Amendment, and that's because many conservatives believe that free speech is being censored unfairly by social media platforms today. So, for instance, obviously, when Twitter decides to ban uh, President Trump, many conservatives uh, were uh, outraged by that action. Uh, there is, however, no First Amendment issue there. Uh, the First Amendment only protects us from government censorship, not censorship by private entities. And so to the extent that Twitter is a private business, it's not the government, it really was not a matter of a First Amendment violation of President Trump's free speech rights. Uh, it's more a matter of contractual terms of use and terms of service that Twitter and other social media platforms like Facebook choose to endorse. And then if you choose to use their service and you don't follow them, 
then they can deplatform you. Mm-hmm. And so even though Twitter is a private um, company in these social media platforms, if you violate their terms of use, you tend to be deplatformed based off of their, um, I, I think, like an ethics board or, or something like that. They'll look over your case if you if you appeal for having your um, social media account reopened to the public to post and stuff like that. Um, even though this is a private platform and you have to abide by these policies in terms of use, it seems that there is more of a consequence or a bigger impact from being banned by a social media platform in this day and age, even though it is just a private company. Do you do you have anything to say on, on these platforms banning people based off what they say? Should there be more government oversight? Is there a lack of government oversight? What's the relationship between... This is one of my biggest in, like topics that I've, I've really, in the last year, really have become interested in because the impact of being deplatformed is huge. Right. So, so there definitely is a large impact uh, when an individual, whether it's a politician or your everyday private citizen, is the is the platform, because essentially social media platforms today are the marketplace of ideas. They are like uh, town squares, uh, public parks and streets and sidewalks where people have long engaged in various forms of speech, including protests and rallies, public parks. We think of that all the time. And so really they have become that type of a situation. Uh, what makes it different here is, again, there's no state action involved. They're private entities. So that's why the First Amendment doesn't come into play. The larger question then is, should the government start to regulate them more closely and almost akin to how the FCC, the federal government, Federal Communications Commission, regulates broadcasters? So as you know, broadcasters can be regulated much more closely than the print medium. Uh, So the question is, do we want a government agency such as the FCC to step in and start regulating more closely uh, private social media platforms and treat them akin to broadcasters who must serve, as the FCC states, the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Uh, the major difference there, though, is that the justification for regulating broadcasting more closely is that there's a finite number of frequencies on which to broadcast. So there are more people who want to broadcast, have a television station, have a radio station, then there are obviously frequencies available on which to broadcast. So the FCC gives out licenses to broadcasters. They don't own the public airways. Your station has to serve the public interest or its license ultimately could be revoked. So there's a physical scarcity problem then in terms of there's only a certain number of frequencies on which people can broadcast. Therefore, the FCC has to step in and gives licenses and mandates that they serve the public interest. But when it comes to the Internet, in social media platforms, there really is no similar physical scarcity issue. Uh, anybody who has a certain amount of money, uh, basically in the computer and a little bit of technological savvy, can create a website in a platform online. They're certainly not going to have the same power as Facebook or Twitter, uh, but there is no physical scarcity issue. In other words, they're not, we can only have X million number of websites out there. That simply is, is not the case. So that's a major difference if we did want to start treating um, social media platforms on the internet more akin to broadcasters. Mm-hmm. So this is a, um, a follow-up question based off of 
access to, to social media in these platforms. Do you think besides the speech that um, happened on January 6th that senators are saying um, inside at the, the resurrection or are bringing um, those charges against uh, President Trump, besides that speech, do you think that social media somehow played a role in, in what happened leading up to the events? And, and if so, what, whose responsibility is it to really look at the consequences of what happened and, um, and regulate that, if that makes sense? I know we kind of went over the question, but from, from that perspective, if, if social media is helping fuel some of the um, activities that could be really dangerous and organizations that are very dangerous, um, should that be a private responsibility or a public responsibility? One of the major issues would be what actually causes or caused the riots on Capitol uh, Hill. Is it uh, President Trump's speech? Is it the general atmosphere that we have speech on social media platforms? Or is it the groups uh, themselves that speak on social media platforms, whether it's Reddit or whether it's uh, or was Parler uh, or uh, Facebook or Twitter? You know, who do you really want to blame? Uh, ultimately, the blame belongs to those who engaged in the action, the conduct, uh, and the question. And so they're going to be held criminally responsible. And obviously, the First Amendment doesn't protect you against criminal conduct. It only protects your speech unless it falls into an unprotected category. So the actors in question, they're the ones who are going to face the legal repercussions. The question comes back, what caused them to act? I think it's almost impossible to unpack what caused them to act. And to the extent that social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook merely host third-party content, they're really not the speakers themselves. It's gonna be difficult to blame them because it's really the speech of others on their websites uh, that somehow stirs or you know chums the waters of discontent. So, uh, you know, who do you want to blame for this becomes the larger question. Uh, it's you know the conduct in question, the actors who stormed the Capitol, they're to blame. Then the question becomes, you know, what what caused them to act? Was it President Trump's speech, or was it simply discontent with the overall election results? Uh, or a, a larger atmosphere of disinformation that there was fraud in the election. Mm -hmm. uh, moving forward to um, talking about when we use these social media platforms, do you give up certain rights when when you when you create an account when you um, post? Are are there any rights that you kind of? Because I remember I think from an earlier political co uh, conversation that we had on another podcast about how you're not entirely entitled to all your rights, like you give up some of them in, in some circumstances? Is this one of those circumstances? Yeah. The terms of use or terms of service that a social media platform uh, has will govern what rights you give up. And so certainly, mm. certainly some social media platforms have terms of service that suggest that when you post a photograph on that social media platform, you give others permission to use it. So even though you might own the copyright to the photograph because you took the photograph, uh, people have to read closely, and nobody really does, unfortunately, the terms of service or terms of use, because you may be giving up certain copyright uh, that you hold in photographs that you've taken by posting them. In other words, other people might have the ability to retweet the image that you took. 
uh, they may have the ability to uh, link to your image. Uh, so in terms of rights, it's much more going to be a contractual right here rather than a constitutional right. Uh, and again, the First Amendment only protects us from government uh, censorship. I think a, a larger question is whether or not some of these social media platforms and entities have become so powerful that they have near monopolies over free speech. It, it, again, not free speech in the First Amendment sense, but they control so, so much of the medium through which people speak that whether we should engage in some type of antitrust or antitrust realm where we break up certain social media platforms and say they've become too powerful, uh, that's a possible solution too, that we say, hey, you have a near monopoly, Facebook or Twitter, you have a near monopoly, so the government should step in, intervene, and break you up uh, into smaller entities, kind of like the government did uh, with Ma Bell, the phone company. So that's another alternative way of going about it is antitrust litigation and saying, hey, you've become too big, too powerful. We need to break you up in some way. Definitely. And so, you know, when it comes to censorship, in your expert opinion, do you have any concerns or are there any red flags that stand out to you when it comes to these platforms or just the First Amendment in general? Are there any, you know, big examples that stand out to you that kind of concern you when it comes to people being able to exercise that First Amendment? Well, well certainly, Certainly today, we have two big issues. One is government censorship of speech, mm -hmm. what the government can stop people or try to do to stop people from speaking, and that raises the First Amendment. But really what we're dealing with here is private censorship, and private censorship today can sometimes in some ways be just as dangerous as government censorship. And that may be the situation that we're dealing with today with large social media platforms. But it's also existed in terms of who controls the marketplace of ideas in terms of large newspaper chains uh, or entities that own a number of television stations, uh, that they have a larger, more powerful voice than others. We all don't have the money to, uh, to own a newspaper or to own a television station. So we see concentration of ownership uh, across different media platforms, whether it's print medium or broadcasting, that you know, a small number of, of companies own a lot of the avenues of communication. And so that can be sometimes ultimately as dangerous as government censorship. So when we think about censorship, there's government censorship where the government says, you can't say this. And then there's also this private censorship, what we're, is what we're dealing with with Facebook and Twitter, when they say, we're going to deplatform you. And, and at times, I think both can really be dangerous. Moving forward when it comes to elected officials and how they use their social media, because Pre, uh, former president, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with my words when, when I'm when I'm talking because the trial is still ongoing and I don't want to. There there hasn't been any. It's going to happen until Friday, or, or I I believe that the trial is going on all week. Um, but basically, not only was it President Trump that was being quote unquote irresponsible, right? When it came to um, putting out voter fraud allegations and and um, other sort of um, misinformation out there. So do the people, the other elected officials who were also engaging in some of the same arguments that Donald Trump made on his speech on January 6th, are they held to any, any standard? Because right now it seems to be only the president, the former president is on trial. Sure. So the other public officials 
who might have had some hand in uh, maybe provoking the incidents that occurred or fanning the flames that led to that. Uh, the remedy there is going to be at the ballot box uh, in the next election in which they come up, whether that's 2022 or 2024, uh, or even 2026 if it's a U.S. senator six-year term, and that is to vote those individuals out of office. Uh, so how can we as citizens, if we do not like those individuals, deal with it, then the next time they come up for election, then we simply vote them out of office. So the remedy there is really in the hands of the voters. That may take a while to come about, uh, but that's the ultimate remedy. The other one more subtle is really you know, censure of, uh, by the Senate uh, or the House of its own members. Uh, you're you're going to be able, as we saw uh, recently with uh, the woman from Georgia, uh, to be removed from various committees in the House. Uh, and so that's another type of remedy uh, that may take place, uh, that you can lose your committee membership, uh, and therefore you essentially lose power uh, because you're removed from various committees that you can sit on. So the, really the big picture remedy then is going to be at the ballot box and then also within uh, the Senate and the House uh, censorship or censure, excuse me, uh, by fellow members in terms of removal from powerful committees and posts. Mm -hmm. And so um, that same representative that you're talking about, Representative Green from Georgia, um, she actually wore a um, face mask that said censored or censorship, something along those lines, um, while she was giving a speech or while she was, you know, at the House. What, what do you have to say about or do you have anything to say about that face mask and whether or not she is in fact being censored in some sort of capacity? Oh, she's in, she's entitled to say whatever she wants. Uh, she's entitled to wear a mask like that if she wants. She also has to bear the repercussions that uh, as a, a member of the House of Representatives uh, in the United States, uh, that you have colleagues uh, who may not respect that, uh, who may not respect your viewpoints. So she certainly can say what she likes. Uh, there may be ramifications for that. So uh, she's not censored. She can keep saying what she wants. She's going to lose uh, committee roles, though. Uh, so there are repercussions uh, for what you say. So the First Amendment certainly gives us the right to say a lot of things and protects us from government censorship. But it, it doesn't necessarily protect us from the other ramifications of, of things that we say. Mm -hmm. And then kind of moving forward a little bit, digging more into social media um, and talking about culture, about how speech changes over time. Um, I understand that there are, throughout American history, there's a, a couple of things that at one point were appropriate to say but are now inappropriate to say. Um, and that seems to be guided really more by people than it is from elected officials. Is that, would you agree on that statement? And do you have anything to add? Sure, so that there certainly are social norms that change over time in terms of use of language mm -hmm. uh, that may have been appropriate in one era and not in another. Uh, and so the use of the N-word, for instance, today, uh, no one would say that word uh, in a classroom uh, and hopefully in other settings where in the past it might've been said by people. But now certainly there's going to be rebuke. Uh, if somebody said that word, they might lose their job. And so, again, uh, that's a question of really, if we think of it community censorship, that the community's reaction rather than government censorship. So 
So we see this all the time where a sportscaster may say something that offends somebody and the network for which that sportscaster works, they may fire that individual. Uh, so that's not uncommon. We think of that, we would consider that more to be community censorship uh, than we would consider it obviously to be government censorship because they're private entities that are doing the, the hiring and the firing in those situations. So certainly uh, the norms of what's acceptable language uh, have changed over time. Uh, that is inevitable. Uh, the First Amendment uh, protects us from censorship by the government uh, when we say certain things. The First Amendment certainly protects a lot of offensive and disagreeable speech. Uh, the Supreme Court has made that clear. You've got a right to burn the American flag in symbolic protest. Uh, the Westboro Baptist Church has the right to engage in homophobic uh, language at funerals held for soldiers who were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you can engage in swear words under the First Amendment to protest the draft. There was a famous case where somebody had a jacket that had F the draft on it, actually said the word, of course. And the Supreme Court in 1971, a case called Cohen versus California, protected the ability of a man to wear that message uh, on the back of his jacket to protest the war in Vietnam. So the First Amendment certainly protects a lot of speech that's offensive, that many people find offensive. Uh, but then, again, that doesn't mean that private entities and businesses, uh, they're not governed by the First Amendment. So uh, they indeed can fire you uh, for engaging uh, in that type of speech. So uh, that's very important to make that distinction. The First Amendment gives you a lot of rights to say things that may offend, uh, but it doesn't mean that, that private businesses and organizations and groups and lobbying groups uh, may exert pressure uh, on you and you might lose your job. So. That, that's, an, that's an important thing to understand, I think. Definitely. So with culture, with the First Amendment, with this impeachment trial, do you see this impeachment trial in particular setting precedents for the future of speech, how people regulate the First Amendment, how other you know, elected officials might be targeted in a sense? I, I don't see this scenario happening very often mm -hmm. where – in, in particularly because we're dealing with impeachment here, where a future president of the United States uh, will say things uh, that lead to ostensibly or allegedly in this case, you know, violence at the Capitol. So I don't see this happening very often uh, in the United States. Uh, hopefully it won't happen again. Uh, we have certainly reached uh, a point where People believe they can say almost anything on social media and they can get away with it, that there are no repercussions. Uh, we're seeing defamation lawsuits now being filed by the uh, voting machine companies and, and software companies uh, for allegations that were made against them that were false. Uh, so maybe if anything, a little bit of the uh, anything goes, you can say whatever you want, lie, make it up. Maybe that will dissipate a little bit, uh, but I don't see this particular impeachment proceeding as really setting any kind of precedent here. Uh, I think it's probably a one-off and unique to President Trump. Obviously, the Democrats have not liked him since he, you know, since he took office, uh, and now he's the only president to be impeached twice. Uh, so certainly, there's political animosity from Democrats toward former President Trump. 
but I really see this as a rather unique situation. Well, those are all the um, questions that we have prepared for you. We appreciate we appreciate um, the conversation that we had and, and you taking the time to speak with us. Definitely. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and good luck with it too. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of What the Politics. This is definitely one of my favorite topics to explore is the First Amendment and how exactly it's protected under our current government and how that might be under pressure or even attacked. Um, this impeachment trial is certainly one of the most historic events of this century so far, even though it's only been 21 years into the century. This is definitely one of the most historic um, events so far. So I am super excited to have to have had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Calvert and explore how the First Amendment is protected, how it's used, and how even social norms can change um, and impact a person's speech over the government's regulations. You can catch us at WNCT.com, and you can also listen on Apple and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.